Hello, fellow walkers. Welcome to 2021. Today, we are kicking it off with a bang. We've got Brian McLaren talking about his new book, Faith After Doubt, which just came out yesterday. Oh, and by the way, brand new intro with a brand new theme song. If we're not reading the Bible through Jesus, and we're taking everything as equal and giving everything uh, the same weight and taking it at its face value, the Bible's an incoherent text. How can you say, listen to the cries of the poor without looking at what makes them poor? You don't have to believe certain things to be part. The irony is that you can be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-military, anti-environment, and still say you're pro-life. But people get really uncomfortable. It's like they want to have their religion and they want to have their porn. They want to do both. I don't think any form of Christianity deserves to survive and thrive if it doesn't come to terms with the racism of our past. When we really tell the story of Jesus, we find a God who comes to the point where it has all collapsed. If a good teacher is to get a student to get the right answers on the test, and if Jesus was supposed to get us to get the right answer for when we die, then can we just be honest and say, not a good teacher? It is a new year, so let's get our health and nutrition on track. And who better to help us with that than Rise Nutrition? You can find them at Rise Menominee on Facebook. And just for Jesus Never Ran listeners, you can click on their link in the show notes and get a free wellness profile. That's Rise Nutrition. Find them on Facebook at Rise Menominee. That's Rise with a Z. All right, here we go. We had Brian on the show way back in 2020. He's back again to talk about his book, Faith After Doubt. Here he is, the incomparable Brian McLaren. In my years as a pastor, I had so many people come to me telling me one way or another their faith was falling apart. Um, They had problems with this doctrine, this belief, this understanding of God, this passage in the Bible. And so I would have to take seriously all those questions and and i jokingly say but it was true that you know people would come to me pour out their heart um they would leave with my best answers and i would be left with their best questions (laughs) and in the years since it just seems that every week i get from a trickle to a flood of messages in my email uh inbox or on social media from other people who say gosh i this thing just isn't working. And, and really from a surprising number of clergy, the number of clergy who feel like their own faith is collapsing and they don't have anybody to talk to about it, I think it would really surprise people. But I see it as a good sign that they're asking questions and grappling and not willing to just say what everyone expects them to say. Well, that leads me right into my next question, which is why is it that throughout history, the church Christianity has done such a good job of building up this fortress of certainty that we all have to try to uphold, which leads people right into situations like you just described. Gosh, uh, Matt, there are so that's such a good question. And I can think of five different directions I could run off in at the same time. Um, But let me mention too, in this book, Faith After Doubt, I talk about four stages of faith development. And stage one is very oriented towards certainty in part because it's oriented towards safety. 
um, you know, one of our most basic needs is our need for safety. And when, when we're little children, we're, we have so much that we're afraid of. And our parents are always warning us about this or that danger that can keep us even more afraid. And, and sadly, many of our religious communities, I hate to say it this bluntly, but they keep people at a kind of infantile stage. In other words, they keep people in a position where they're constantly afraid, afraid that they'll lose God's favor, afraid that they'll go to hell, afraid that they'll be kicked out, afraid, you know, whatever. And so I think that's one reason. But I think there's another. And I think that other is actually political and economical and social. You know, we are part of this much larger story uh, especially if we're white, especially if we're Christian, especially if we're in the West, um, that goes back to Co- Christopher Columbus in 1492 and even before. It's the story of colonialism. And in order for people to go into all the world and steal the lands of all nations and make slaves of all nations and exploit the resources of all nations and exploit the lands of all nations, it demands a very high level of either hubris or confidence in people with a lot of hubris. And so that, I think that there is that kind of economic, political, social dimension to our addiction for certainty. We're doing some things that are so ethically questionable that we have to keep doubling down on being certain. Yeah, I also think, Brian, that the idea of certainty gives people almost a false sense of security to hold on to. Yeah, yeah. There was a great Christian missiologist of the last century named Leslie Newbegin, and he used to say, he he wrote a book called Proper Confidence, and he said our great struggle in this era is that we've had an excessive confidence that empowered and enabled us to do it, to commit atrocities, crimes against humanity. As civilizations as nations and religions and then we also have it as individuals as a parent you know i think about times when i was way too harsh with my children and expected way too much of them and but i didn't have any self-doubt i was sure of myself and i had other people telling me to stick with the program i just think it's baked into us from from many different directions this desire and need for uh, for certainty. So we have excessive confidence, Leslie Newbegin said, and then we have other people who want to throw that away, and they have an insufficient confidence. They have a confidence deficit, and he said we're in search of a proper confidence. Now, when I'm having conversations or posing questions about maybe doubts that I've gone through in my life, the biggest thing, without a doubt, the biggest thing that gets in the way of that conversation is this feeling that somehow I'm trying to cut the entire foundation out from under the person I'm talking to. And, you know, you and I, Brian, we grew up in a context, as did many of the listeners of this podcast and so many people in our culture, grew up in this environment where we were told through our religious circles what was true and what was untrue. And so the moment that we start questioning those things, it's, it's like we're cutting in on something that's been believed for an entire lifetime, like from as far back as we can remember. And I think, I think some people are afraid to have these conversations because they don't know how to build a new foundation if that old one is completely torn down or even partially torn down. Yeah, so well said. Years ago, uh, Scott Peck wrote a book called People of the Lie. And one of the things he explored in that book, 
is just the idea that questioning your assumptions is depressing. It's depressing because it drains so much energy. It's so stressful to question your assumptions. And one of the things I, I wanted to explore in the book is, is try to bring to the surface the social dimensions of that, especially in Christian congregations. If you question this, then everyone in the prayer meeting is going to be praying for you, you know, and, and the preacher might not trust you to lead a Bible study group anymore. And, and the, the social cost of you asking one single question can be really, really high. That causes a lot of stress. That makes people afraid. You mentioned earlier that in the book, you talk about four stages of faith. And I'm not going to lie, when I got to that section of the book, it brought about like this weird feeling of trepidation because I think in the church circles and the faith circles that I've been a part of, there's so much of that kind of wording, right? Like the stages of discipleship or the three-point sermon, whatever it is, it seems kind of par for the course for a lot of the religious upbringing that so many of us have. So what was it that made you decide in this book to talk about the four stages of faith. And you do a great job, by the way, of just calling it for what it is. You, you called out in the pages of your book the exact thing that I was feeling a little bit of trepidation about. Yeah, well, first, I'm so glad you're honest about that reaction. And <laughs> as you know, later in the book, I say, look, I know that some of you have loved this, these last three or four chapters, and some of you have hated these last three or four chapters, and here's why, and you have good reasons. The fact is, any schema, a four-stage schema, a 24-stage schema, any schema, any attempt to describe reality it is a simplification, and it can be an oversimplification if we take it too seriously. Look, let me give an example. If I say the word red, you have something in mind. But if you have in mind fire engine red, and I have in mind brick red, we have two very different things in mind. So, even using the word red can mislead. Once one simple word can be abused in that way, so can uh, you know any kind of stage theory like this. But I think there are certain interesting patterns of coherence. And when you notice a pattern, uh, and you see that that pattern really carries through in many different settings, I, I don't think it's a bad thing to try to talk about it, as long as you don't make it an absolute. <laughs> Yeah. Do you mind sharing what the four stages of faith are that you outline in the book? So the first stage I call simplicity, and it's the stage of dualism. Um, the second stage is the stage of uh, complexity, and that's the stage of pragmatism. We enter complexity when we realize that those simple dualisms, in, out, us, them, right, wrong, safe, dangerous, that it's that those dualisms aren't so simple. So for example, a young Catholic kid grows up and, you know, the nuns tell him how dangerous Protestants are. And then a priest abuses him. Well, suddenly the them weren't the big danger. It was one of us. Oh, when those dualisms start to break down, it causes real, exactly the kind of stress you talked about a minute ago. And that either plunges people into the trauma of trying to retreat back to stage one and hold on to stage one, or facing in stage two. Yeah, life is complicated. Things aren't as simple as we thought. I want to try to master all the information that I can and master all the skills that I can. And I'm going to fix this thing. And I'm going to get it right. And I'm going to find the right technique to make this work. And that's the work of stage two. I spent a lot of my Christian life struggling there. Um, and I think a lot of people who read this book 
will be people in stage two, where now stage two stops working, where the four-stage schema didn't explain everything, and where the five steps to marital happiness, you followed all five and you still had a divorce. And, you know, all of these, you know, your five keys to interpreting the Bible, you find out aren't so foolproof. And, and all of that stage two stuff, the stuff that really has fueled, I think, the megachurch movement in many ways, that stuff stops working. And, and you really hit a crisis if the pastor who taught you the five keys to marital success, then he gets divorced. <laughs> then you're like, oh, but it didn't work for him. And that pushes you into stage three, which I call perplexity, which is the stage where everything comes undone. And you question, you feel free now. You can't stop yourself from questioning everything. And a lot of people stay there their whole lives. But I think there is a kind of faith that emerges in that honesty and authenticity of that stage that I call harmony. And it's a, a stage of learning to see things whole and integrate all the honest and true observations we've made in our earlier stages to try to integrate them now in a bigger picture. How do we keep this idea of four stages of faith, which, by the way, all of my trepidation has gone away. I'm I feeling comfortable with it. But how do we keep that from feeling like some sort of hierarchy? Well, the, the, the first thing I would say is that stage one people like hierarchies. So the fact that you see that as a problem tells me you're not a stage one person. A stage one person wants hierarchy. And the trick that I feel in this, if I can say it that way, is that in this case, if I can appeal to a stage one person that they're not at the top of the hierarchy, <laughs> this will be good for them. Um, this will be spiritually good for them. Stage two people, they can deal with hierarchies. They just want to know the fastest way to get to the top. The good news for them is I think we can grow. But the bad news for them is you can't rush it. There's work to do. And the first stages aren't bad. They're necessary. Stage three people are the ones who can't stand this the most. And anyone who's in or beyond stage three knows the dangers of hierarchies. And all I can say to them is that you're right to be suspicious. And at early parts of stage three, they won't be able to go any farther than that. But when then they start to realize, but you know what? Hierarchies can be abused, but so can medicine. I mean, medicine can be abused to sell people addictive painkillers, right? But it also can help you with pain when you need, need pain relief. So this, this is part of the ability moving beyond stage three to see things whole. Another name that I toyed with using for stage four rather than harmony is uh, solidarity. And part of what happens when you get to that stage is you say, I don't want to be above anyone. I don't want supremacy. I want solidarity. If we haven't reached stage four unless we want solidarity. And then maybe the only other thing I'd say to that question, Matt, and you don't want to say this to a person in stage three without being sensitive to the fact that they're really onto something. But the irony is that people who don't believe in hierarchies tend to feel superior to people who do, which creates a hierarchy. At one point in the book, you share a story about a young woman who comes to you. And one of the things that she's just really, really looking for is a community, someplace where she can go and feel safe to ask these questions, to explore her faith, to search for God, whatever it is. And I run into so many people in my everyday life who are looking for that exact same thing. And it's a little bit of what you talk about towards the latter part of your book. But do you think 
we have the ability to do this? Can we actually create little pockets, little faith communities throughout our world? Do we even have the critical mass of people who are in the same space to even think about doing something like that? Well, it's one of the other reasons I hope this book could be useful, because if people can see that there are different stages that we're in, it can help us then have, if I can make this analogy, instead of starting a second grade classroom, we want to start a whole K through 12 educational system, right? And, and, and when you do that, you realize, you know, if, if instead of thinking like a, a classroom teacher, you think like a principal, I have people at different stages. And my job is to help them have a smooth and, and unobstructed opportunity to grow. If we can think in that way, it wouldn't be hard for us to get where we need to be. All we need is enough stage four leaders who to begin to develop a community where people are welcome at each stage. There's a story, I don't tell the story in the book, if I could just give a quick example of this. So when I was a pastor, this is what I was trying to do. And, and the congregation, Cedar Ridge Community Church in the D.C. area, that you know, still going strong. Their their new pastor and the whole congregation are doing a great job. But this is what we were trying to be. But it meant that we had to find a way to communicate to people at stages one, two, and three. If we just form a little holy huddle of stage four people over here, we'll help each other survive. That's a good thing. But if we want to help others, what are we going to do? So one Sunday, I have this guy come up to me afterwards and say, hey, this is my first Sunday here. I love this church. I love the music. I love your sermon. It was great. This is my fiance. We're about to get married. And I think this is the church we want to be, uh, we want to go to. And I uh, just wanted to introduce myself. I can't wait to get involved. And he says, I'd love to ask you a few questions. So we set up a breakfast to have, you know, get together. So we sit down. And uh, I, I'm, I'm a cheap date. So we met him at McDonald's just because it was a convenient <laughs> And um, he says, uh, so Brian, I'm looking for a church that's going to tell me what's right and what's wrong, what to believe and what not to believe. Like, I don't want any of this on the one hand, on the other hand stuff. I just want someplace that's going to tell it to me the way it is, right? And so now how do I respond to this guy? Because it's, he's making it clear to me that he's in stage one and there's nothing wrong with that. So, but I realized one of the things that stage one folks want is a strong, confident leader. So I said to him, Oh, we'll call him Doug. Oh, Doug, I am so disappointed. What, what do you mean? I said, Doug, when I met you on Sunday, I thought, I can't wait for this guy to be part of our congregation. He's exactly the kind of person I'm looking for. But now, when you, what you just told me, we are definitely not the congregation you're looking for. Well, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? I said, Doug, you're asking for somebody to do all your thinking for you that would turn you into kind of like a weak parasite who's just dependent on others. I want to teach you how to think for yourself and I want to teach you how to have wisdom and I want to teach you how to, you know, how to grow as a mature human being, not somebody who's dependent on somebody else. And I could just watch the gears turning in his brain. He goes, no, I want that. That's what I want. (laughs) And, And so in a sense, he wasn't ready for all the complexities of it, but he was ready for clarity. That's the kind of thing that I think we can do. We just have to be sure enough. We have to have a proper confidence, as we were talking about before, that we're actually on a journey here, and this journey is worth it. And you can start where you are, but just because you cross the starting line doesn't mean you're finished the race. <laughs> I do love that concept of the proper confidence because 
anytime something is unhealthy in one direction, sometimes it swings way too far to the other direction. And so we still like there has to be something that we stand on because if we have nothing to stand on, then who's going to want to follow any of that? So I really do love that concept. And I just hope that we have leaders in our culture, leaders in our world that will lead in a way that will challenge people's intellect, that will lead in a way that gives those who are listening to them the courage to ask questions, the courage to explore their own faith in a way that ultimately really, really matters. What I think really needs to be said is as a Christian, somebody who thinks Jesus was right, that Jesus was really onto something and was really right. Well, you know, what Jesus basically says is, look, you can have a thousand other things. You can say, Lord, Lord, you can have all the right words. If you don't actually live and live by the greatest commandment, which is love, God, neighbor, other, outcast, enemy, and yourself, and I would add the earth, if you don't live by love, then you've got nothing. And of course, that's what Paul picks up. It, I mean, as you know, the last third of the book, I, I really hone in on this one, I think, underrated radical statement of Paul when he says, you can have all this other religious stuff. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, the only thing that matters is faith that expresses itself in love. And so when we make love the point, now we've got something to stand on. And look, we could be wrong. Greed could be the point. Power could be the point. I ha hate to say it, but one of the things that makes me doubt huge sectors of white Christianity is I think for them, money and power are the point. And they use beliefs as their banner to, to cover their quest for power and money. Uh, if we actually believe love is the point, I'm happy to be wrong. That's where I'm going to take my risk. Completely agree. If I'm going to be wrong, let it be for the right reasons. <laughs> let it be because I was trying to love and care for those around me. One of the things that struck me about this new book about faith after doubt is that you share a lot of stories from a number of people that you've encountered throughout the years. But what I really appreciated even more than that is that you share an awful lot about your own story. Arguably, in this book, you share more about your own journey than the rest of your books combined. So the question I have is, was that intentional? And if so, why did you choose to do it? Mm. Well, you know, uh, that's a great question. I, I really, maybe I should come back tomorrow and have a day to think about that. <laughs> but to give a quick answer, Matt, because it's such a, a good question. I think one of the things that happens when you reach your 60s is you, you get old enough that all the people who are criticizing you are either dead or younger than you. <laughs> and, or, or they might be older, but their own feet of clay have shown. And so I, I think one reason I was not more forthcoming about some of these things is I didn't trust that powerful people would use anything I say against me. I'm just being honest. I, I, you could call that cowardice, but I'm not sure. It might have been wisdom too. But I, I just knew that, that there are some things that would be used against me. And I realize now I don't really care if people want to use something against me. And I also feel the times are so desperate that if my honesty in any way is a bridge for people to say I'm not the only one, that's, that's a risk that's, that's worth taking at this point. I can only speak for myself in just saying that hearing somebody 
like yourself, who's been such an influence on my life, hearing some of what made you the person that you are, I found very, very helpful. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you for your bravery in doing that. So what's next? What's This book just came out this week. What's after this? So this book is part of a two-book series. And, and so this is Faith After Doubt. And the other book is called Do I Stay Christian? And so I'm writing about Christian identity. And I'm actually about two-thirds of the way through it. So these two really are kind of like two wings or something. Um, they, they, they go together. And I, I should say that this feels like some of the most important work of my life, these two books. So... Ryan, what is your hope? Now, this may be way too broad of a question, but what is your hope for somebody who picks up your book and reads it? They get through it. They put it down. What is your hope for that reader? That they'll realize that love is the point. That's that's what I hope they'll realize. Yeah. But they'll feel, if all that my faith leads me to do is put love first, to seek to be the most loving version of myself that I possibly can be, man, I'll feel great. I'll feel great. Special thanks to Brian McLaren for kicking off 2021 with a bang. And I cannot, I repeat, I cannot recommend the book Faith After Doubt more highly. Go out and get it today. You can click through in the show notes. It'll get you a direct link so you can purchase it. This should definitely be the first book on your 2021 reading list. Of course, to support this podcast, just simply subscribe to it. And then you can write us a review and give a five-star rating. Helps us a ton. Just get exposure, get seen so that more of these conversations can be happening in our cities, in our world, in our communities. So until next time, friends, keep walking.